0: All right, school is in session. So take your seats and turn up the volume. Volume. It's time for the smartest fishing show on the internet. This is the show that dives into everything fishing from tactics and gear to policy and product. Here he is, the fishing professor, Professor Sid Dobrin. So stick around, you might learn something. Okay, welcome to the Inventive Fishing Fishing Professor Rodcast. I am Sid Dobrin coming to you from the Inventive Fishing inshore offshore digital studio. And I just want to confirm that the rumors are true. I have walked 47 miles of barbed wire. I got a cobra snake for a necktie, a brand new house on the roadside, and it's made out of rattlesnake hide. Got a brand new chimney put on top and it's made out of human skull. Come and take a little walk with me, baby, and tell me who do you love? Who do you love? I'll tell you who you're going to love, and that's Dr. Bonefish, because we have got Sean Dr. Bonefish Maury in the inshore-offshore digital studio today, and yes, as you might have guessed, we are going to talk bonefish today, and we're going to get great insight into bonefishing from one of the world's leading experts on all things bonefish, and yes, we'll also be counting down my top 10 artificials for targeting bonefish. And I'll be giving you the insider's lowdown on Knob Creek Ride during the bourbon break. So kick back, put your feet up, and get patient, because we're chasing gray ghosts today. Hey, be sure to subscribe to the Rodcast by clicking that subscribe button on whatever platform you're using to access the Rodcast. Keep in mind, too, that if you have a comment about the show, you can always email me at Sid or use the comment option on any of the platforms through which you have accessed the Rodcast. If you have an opinion you'd like to convey to me, I am quite capable of ignoring you no matter how you reach out. Just remember, to borrow from old Ed Zern, all anglers are born honest, honest, but they get over it. So I won't keep keep lying to you today. We can get on with it here at the Rodcast. Okay, so there's this trope that has been prevalent in American television and movies since the 1930s. It's often yelled by a character when somebody is injured in a public setting, such as a theater or a restaurant, and somebody's going to yell, is there a doctor in the house? Well, today, in answer to that question, we have a doctor in the house. We've got Dr. Bonefish in the Inventive Fishing Inshore Offshore Digital Studio. That's right, Dr. Sean Mori, aka Dr. Bonefish, one of the world-leading experts on Bonefish. Growing up in Florida's Lower Keys and mentored by both the legendary bonefish angler and guide Tim Carlisle, as well as the shirtless captain from Team Wise Fishing and Little Butt Naked, Captain Judd Wise, Dr. Bonefish has all had already rebuilt his first fishing boat and caught more bonefish by the time most teenagers even get their driver's license. Sean's earned his doctorate from the University of Florida, and he's been faculty at Clemson University and now the University of Tennessee, so he really is another fishing professor. He's also co-owner of Inventive Fishing. He's the author of Network of Bones, and if I'm not mistaken, currently writing his second bonefish book about bonefish around the world. To say that he is obsessed with bonefish is an understatement. He's got a backcountry soul, and he's always looking for that tail. He's the one they call Dr. Bonefish. He's the one that makes you fish all night. He's the one they call Dr. Bonefish. He's going to be your bonefish guide. Oh, yeah, we got crew as part of the bonefish crew today, and we've got Dr. Bonefish in the inshore offshore studio, and we're going to talk bones. Sean, thanks for being here. Oh, thank you. And thank you for that musical
1: and hyperbolic introduction. Um, I don't think I deserve it, but I appreciate it nonetheless.
0: Well, I just appreciate that you referred to it as musical and not screaming torture. So uh, thank you for that. (laughs) So we're going to spend much of this conversation today talking about bonefish and picking your brain for expert and insider knowledge. But let's start with the obvious question what is it about bonefish that draws your obsession? And in your book, Network of Bones, you write that you don't know when you first heard about bonefish, but quote, I became instantly hooked before I had even seen an image of one. Talk about that obsession.
1: Yeah, I I, I know the first time I heard about it was once we moved down to the Keys when I was around 10. And we had... Um, Tarpon cruising in our canal, which of course, being a complete novice at the time, I thought were sharks when they're when their uh, dorsals came out of the water, because that's all I knew about dorsals. were if they came out of the water, it was a shark. But then I learned those were tarpon, and then maybe through this conversation, I, I started to learn. Somebody mentioned in that context, bonefish, and um, maybe I just have some kind of macabre orientation in my personality, but you know this idea of a bone and you know everything that represents um from skeletons to death to just this you know obscurity um you know i don't know it just captured my imagination at the time and um you know my my dad had been a a lifelong fisherman but had little experience with flats fishing he was more of an offshore and bottom fishing guy and you know a meat fisher and so it wasn't until I got to working at Sugarloaf Marina where I, I really learned what, what this fish was and looked like. And, and that just added to the mythology for me. And so I think, you know, so <laughs> I started to hear all of the, um, you know, kind of lore around bone fishing that they're very difficult to catch, that they're hard to see, that they're very spooky. And, you know, all of that just like fed into my obsession and made me want to go after them more. Uh, and so I know I needed a boat to do that. And so um, I, I tried to build a, a skiff out of um, lobster pot floats that, you know, that lobster uh, uh, fishermen um, mark their traps with. And so I strung like, I don't know, a a couple hundred of those together and threw some plywood on top and put a little electric motor on. And that was not the safest rig um, to go out. And so eventually um, I found just an old hull abandoned on the side of the road and uh, was able to get salvage rights to it. It had a bunch of illegal lobster carapaces in it. And clearly somebody didn't want it to be, you know, didn't want to be associated with it anymore and just dumped it. And so um, I ended up uh, getting rights to that, rebuilt that boat and turn it into a skiff that I could finally like get out to some flats um, with. Um, but I have to say, like, yeah, so that's kind of, I guess, part one of the origin story. Before I even caught a bonefish, that's like, you know, the, the montage of me getting out there.
0: It's impossible to hear you say those things and talk about that origin story without evoking thoughts of Zane Gray's passion for bonefish too. And since, like you, Gray felt the need to write about bonefish in one of the other very few books dedicated solely to bonefish, uh, Gray explains his passion for bonefish as, quote, to date in all my experience, I consider this bonefish achievement the most thrilling, fascinating, difficult, and instructive. That is a broad statement and I hope I can prove it. I'm prepared to state that I feel almost certain that if I spent another month bone fishing, I would become obsessed and perhaps lose my enthusiasm for other kinds of fish. Are you there too? Are you willing to surrender all other fish just to target bones?
1: Yeah, I I have to admit that. um, Yeah. if, If I only had one kind of fishing that I could do, that would be it. And I mean, to tell the truth, uh, I'm up in Knoxville now, completely landlocked, and I feel it every day. Um, and when I get down to the Keys, I, you know, I will, maybe, I, you know, maybe I should admit this, but I will, I'll be real. Um, I get kind of a little bit anxious and annoyed when I'm out doing any other kind of fishing, you know, for other, with other people, right? You know, so, you know, I have, you know, when I go down there, and I hook up with friends uh, and mentors, you know, I will go bottom fishing with them. I will go shark fishing or whatever they want to do. But, you know, I'm just in for the, the days that I carve out for myself just to sit out and bone fish all day. Um, now, I will say that, you know, fishing for permit and tarpon will help satiate that that appetite a little bit Um, like they're the appetizers that will kind of appease me if I can't be catching bonefish and and I think that's because to go back to your first question they exhibit a lot of the characteristics that once I caught my first bonefish and realized what it actually was experientially um, um, captivated me which was this kind of liminal presence being both in and out of the water um, that they show those kinds of signs of tailing or rolling, um, that they're in shallow water where I can I can wade if I want to and kind of be in the water with them at the same time that I'm angling. Um, that you know the that I I don't fly but I have fly gear. <laughs> and, but they can all be caught the same way with very similar uh, gear. Although obviously with, with tarpon, you would need heavier tackle. Um, it's, it's certainly with similar baits. I mean, I think I've caught, you know, I mean, crabs are popular bait for tarpon. I think I've caught more tarpon on shrimp than I have on crabs. Um, and so I think, and, and anyways, and, and obviously other anglers feel this way too, because they're all categorized as the flat slam. And so, but, um, you know, I'm not, I don't have the tarpon fever that a lot of people have. I don't have the permit fever that my friend and, and, um, uh, guide Will Benson gets. Uh, I, I have it for bones and I just think they're, um, maybe it's because they're the little fish among these bigger fish and they're harder to see and, there's just something that I intrinsically recognize in them that I see in myself that I haven't articulated yet, that I'll probably spend a lifetime trying to. Um, it's just, yeah, bones above all others.
0: So you started to touch on some of the strategies, and I want to talk a little bit about strategy. And you mentioned fly fishing, and like you said, that's not your go-to strategy. Um, and you know, there are a lot of ways to target bones, and some of those come and go as trends, but Right now, fly fishing for bones is depicted as sort of an epic kind of fishing with all the media images, particularly of, you know, the expansive flats in the Bahamas and guides waiting with anglers across the flats in these brightly colored designer fishing clothes. It's almost a cliched image, you know, the guide pointing to the spot on the water from the polling platform where the angler's supposed to cast, strip the line, and then zing, you know, that line peels out at searing speed. What is it about bone fishing on the fly that has become such a dream worthy eye candy bucket list kind of experience for fishermen?
1: Yeah, um I have to think that I don't know, the cynical part of me just thinks it's kind of a people are maybe okay, so, you know, I think there's something about a direct connection with the fish that a fly reel and rod are supposedly um, able to supply that other kinds of tackle aren't. Um, I'm not sure I bought into this. Um, obviously with a spinning reel you have a different kind of, of gearing and ratio of, of, of you know the way that a line is taken out by a fish where with a fly reel it's just straight off the spool you know you it's a one-to-one you know, kind of connection, I guess. Um, the you know, and this other part of me just also thinks that fly fishing marketing is just better <laughs> at marketing to a certain demographic than than spinning and and um, and other methods are, and they know how to appeal to kind of the escapist fantasies of these locations where you you fly fish and again like pulling up all these iconic you know what have become kind of iconic images of bone fishing um and maybe that's just a part of of fishing that i'm not tapped into that these other people are um i mean yeah. And, let
0: me push you on that just a yeah. little bit because um you know, one of the things you talk about is, you know, having to build your first boat to get out to the flats and learning from these guides and, you are know, really entrenched in the educational part of that. But for a lot of anglers, it's a matter of, pay. you know, flying to a remote location, paying a guide to drive you out to where they know the fish are, pointing to the fish, telling you where to cast, telling you where to strip. Is it a different kind of experience in the way you learn to bone fish than that romanticized notion of of people fly fishing for bones?
1: Well, yeah. So I'll say this, and I you know I don't want to disparage any other ways of catching bone fish, like you know to each their own, and you know I'm not I'm not trying to judge, but I feel like I was fascinating with the with the animal before you know i got the the want to to catch it with rod and reel and so you know i wasn't you know uh, you know part of it is i just you know couldn't afford to to hire a guide to take me out you know and and uh captain timmy whose boat i cleaned um at the marina like he he was booked so often like he didn't have time and I, you know i was just too shy to like you know hey you know captain carlisle you know can you take me out um and which he has done later uh, but not at the time um and and you know and I don't know maybe part of it is just I I tend to be an autodidact and feel like I learn better when I have to learn it myself and teach myself but I also you know wanted to be out there with them and learn their behaviors and characteristics and patterns for myself and kind of earn catching them um you know again like I don't want to disparage you know people who you know, hire a guy to do this. And certainly if you only get out like, you know, once a year, once a lifetime, like that's the best way to do it. If you're just out there to catch a bonefish. But, you know, I wanted to kind of dive deeper than that. And I wanted to kind of see for myself what this animal was about and then what angling for it was about. And, you know, I, I couldn't have somebody show me. And and so, like, you know, all my first bonefish were all caught, you know, um, either with my dad, who was also as clueless as I was, um, or just by myself. And I had to think that helped me be a better angler um, and, and, you know, and I guess mm, um, champion of bonefish than I would be otherwise.
0: As you're speaking, all I hear are echoes of Grizzly Man. And I wonder if you're going to, you know, the next Sean Morey documentary is going to be you living with the bonefish to really, to really learn them. I mean, but that's kind of your approach, right, to in, 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 you know, place yourself in that environment and really learn the behavior. So let's put fly aside for a second, uh, because that's a, a different kind of beast, Um, and one of the things I want to talk about are some strategies. And you mentioned that you, uh, you know, with crabs and shrimp, and we'll talk about your baiting and rigging strategies in a second, but let's talk about artificials for a second. How would you advise the fishing professor, professor, listening crew, not about specific lures per se, but about how to think about selecting artificials for bone fishing? That's, you know, what are your philosophies when you, when you have to go to artificial?
1: Uh, Yeah. So when I go to artificial, I, you know, a a big part of it is wind. It's, you know, trying to find a a lure that I'm able to cast and then, but then when it hits the water, it doesn't spook the fish. Um, And so, you know, so you want something that, you know, that's, that's both light and heavy enough. And so uh, it's a lot of, of tying you know, or trying those different lures out in the conditions and seeing what I can use. And it's, you know, it also has to do, I guess, with your rod characteristics and, and, you know, making sure, I mean, you have to pair the rod with the lure I find. Otherwise I'm just, maybe it's just me, but I'm, I, I can't cast it. And so, I mean, that's, that's kind of the beginning. Um, I know like there's lots of color philosophies of, of match the hatch and, or match the bottom or, Um, you know, I have a couple colors that are kind of go-to for me and, you know, as long as the fish are there, they seem to, to hit. And so I don't really bother a lot with colors. It's more about, um, just having something I could get to the fish without spooking it. And that's basically, I mean, it's pretty simple. That's, that's all I'm looking to do.
0: Or say the classic keys, bonefish jigs or crab imitators, or what, what are your go-to's?
1: Yeah, I mean, I prefer bucktails, um, I and especially, um, you know, like the calf tails that are um, a little bit smaller and shorter. Um, I find those work really well, and they uh, maybe, I don't know, tend to snag in the grass less than other lures for me, uh, and so that's another one that I can, I can jig it properly and, and get the movement out of it, um, but that's primarily what I'll use.
0: All right. That's, that's great, great advice, but let's, let's shift to bait because you tend to focus your bone fishing on some very fundamental rigging and some very fundamental baiting practices. Talk about your primary bone fish strategy and particularly the simplicity of how you rig and bait.
1: Yeah. So I'm pretty simple. Um, I'll just have like eight pound test if it's mono like maybe up to 20 pound if it's prayed, which I'm using more and more than I used to. And if braid, you know, I'll use like a 20 pound, uh, fluorocarbon leader. That's not that long. I don't know, like maybe 18 inches and maybe just a Bimini twist with mono. Um, and then with, uh, the hook, I mean, I'll just use a, um, maybe a one aught or one bait holder hook. So it'll have the, Spurs on the shank to help keep a shrimp in place um and then what i i've been doing more recently and you know this is something i saw originally um rick murphy do um on one of his tv shows which is to file down the barbs right i mean the bonefish mouth for you know to me is is pretty fleshy in the places where i end up hooking it and where it doesn't really tend to just fall out if i'm not like really careful with with keeping a line as tight as i need to but on the other hand like you know i prefer you know basically the fish rebuking me if i don't respect it enough to keep that line tight right and if i lose it then i can do better next time and i know what i i messed up on um so so that that's typically um what i'll use for gear and then maybe i mean usually always because I never get great conditions, uh, I'll, I'll pop some split shots on there, um, especially if the, the currents rip in, because I do want that, that shrimp to kind of like move to the bottom um, in front of the fish or, or when it's rooting around and, and it catches the scent. Now I've, I've been challenged by <laughs> different places. Um, you and I went out to Hawaii a couple of times and the first time we went, we thought, well, it's better to listen to local advice and we were told basically use like 60 pound power pro, tie it off with 100 120 pound fluorocarbon, put like some of these big um, pyramid sinkers that you might use for surf casting on there, and you know put a big piece of, of Ika or squid on the end of it, and then just throw it out there and wait. And we kind of tried that approach, and you know we tried it out there on the flats that we were able to kayak out to. And one, you can't, you can't cast a fish that way. I mean, the splash is just so huge. And I guess you could throw it out there and you could wait. Um, But, you know, I have to be honest, that's kind of, it's kind of like meat fishing, right. Or bottom fishing. And that's not, you know, and I will do that. That's not my preference to like, you know, sit there, chum up bone fish and not be able to see them because it's a windy winter day or whatnot, but I will catch them that way because of, you know, my fever for them but um you know my preferred way is sight fishing and so um you know we quickly were like screw this let's just go back to what we know and i went back to our classic rig we found you know some crabs out there popped them on and that worked and the only caveat we found out is when they run deep get the hell to the edge and keep them off of that lava rock the you know for rubbing against it and and we were able to be pretty successful with that strategy um but um, so, yeah, so, I mean, that's just my go-to rig and it, it pretty much never fails.
0: You've anticipated anticipated a question I was going to ask later in the conversation about that Oahu trip that first time. And the you know, you've explained exactly what um, I wanted to get at with trying the local ways, learning the local ways, and just going back to your, uh, your strategy. And, you know, we've gone back several times and um, you know, your method proved successful, and we we've taken some really big bonefish on the the Oahu flats in the subsequent years. Well, let's confess, you mostly took all the big bonefish. I got you know one or two each time, but uh, Doctor Bonefish well, bu- dominates. Doctor Bonefish dominates on the flats in Hawaii too.
1: So. Well, you're you know, I mean, you're busy with the camera, taking pictures and video, and and you're catching your bones your way, and so and I think that's really the point. Like, I'm not saying this is the right way to catch bonefish or any fish, you know, kind of. I think everybody should kind of find their own fishing authenticity and just, you know, do whatever makes sense and works for them. You know, try new things from time to time to improve your angling skills. But, like, ultimately, I think, you know, use what you know and trust yourself. So,
0: yep, yeah. So let's go back to the strategy then. Um, and if we want to come back to Hawaii later, we can. You also do a lot of chumming when you're bone fishing. Talk about why and how you do that.
1: Yeah. So I I primarily do this like the first day I go back and bonefish and um, I'm just kind of greedy and I just want to catch the first bonefish to kind of get the, the bonefish monkey off my back, so to speak. And so I will, you know, and the other point is, I guess the other part of this is I'm not there as often, and so I don't really know where the fish are. I don't know like how they're moving, what flats there are, they're at, if they're necessarily on the Atlantic or in the back country at any given moment. And so, you know, I'll kind of use chumming as a method of one, just to kind of find out if they're in the area. That's not always a proven method, but you know, I mean, it's not guaranteed that if I throw some chum in there, I'll I'll get bonefish and that they are aren't there, but. Um, it'll at least give me some indication if they're, you know, they're thick, you know, thick enough to to draw them to where the chum is. And so I'll, you know, I'll throw out some chum and I'll try there. And if that doesn't work, we we'll go to another spot until I kind of find where they're at. And then once I've gotten, you know, some bones that way, and I kind of know the area, then I'll try to look for ties that I can, I can wade for them. Um, I mean, I, you know, I prefer to go after tailing bones in very shallow water when I can. And, you know, my flats boat is almost 35 years old now and does not have the draft of these micro skiffs. And so, you know, I'll just, I'll just beach it on an incoming tide and then wade as the tide rises um, or vice versa. Um, And so, but yeah, but I will chum as, as kind of, I guess it's like, what I hear about gold spoons for like West coast fishing, like that's the prospecting spoon, right? If you don't know what's really out there or what to use, throw a gold spoon see if you get trout or reds or anything else. And then, you know, if you've kind of find fish in the area, then you can start to play with other, other kind of lures. And chumming is kind of my kind of method of prospecting. When I, I first go down um, just to kind of see where, you know, which of my spots are producing you Know wh- what's there, and um, that's so it, yeah. I mean, in some ways, it's eh, okay. Well, the other aspect of that is too is you know, if the weather is just nasty and it's too difficult to pull, or there's too much chop, and they're not going to tell when there's chop, um, that's a method that I use th- to try to get them up there. The <laughs> and so the third part of this is that I didn't th- that now applies is I've got kids and You know, it's difficult uh, seven and nine. It's difficult to pull and bait their 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 lines and detangle their lines when they both cast at the same time. And so, for me to just get them interested in bonefish and interested in 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 this kind of fishing, um, chumming is just a lot easier to bring them to me instead of trying to get to them. And you know, kind of allowing me to tend to mentoring their fishing education and still catch bone fish at the same time and so you know,
0: it's interesting that as i hear you talk about your approaches to bone fishing um, one of the things that i think is not talked about a lot with bone fishing is the extreme degree of patience that bone fishing requires i mean fishing in general is always thought of as demanding patience but bone fishing really is a folly of the patient angler uh, making it also really one of the most contemplative fishing practices out there. How did you develop that degree of patience? I mean, I've, I have seen you sit and stare at the water literally for, you know, six hours, eight hours, just waiting for a single bonefish. How did you get that degree of patience and how has that served you, you know, not just as a bonefish angler, but in life as well?
1: Yeah. Um, I guess I didn't have many friends as a kid, and just sitting by myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, so before I was introduced to just the the for me the miracle is the keys. Like I, I was always in the woods as a kid, and just kind of I spent a lot of time by myself, and just kind of being in those spaces. And I guess it made me comfortable with just whatever in her voice you know, I had or whatever, you know, I spent so, you know, I'm not just looking for bonefish in those during those hours. Like I'm always also bouncing through multiple conversations in my head and I could, you know, I'm I'm thankfully not addicted to my phone the way, you know, we've a lot of us have become again, no judgment with that, but uh, I could just sit in my head like I could drive in the car for eight hours and not listen to the radio and just be in my head the whole time. So when you pair, and and maybe I developed that just being outside, I don't know. Um, It's something I would like to find out so I can try to instill it in my kids if it's useful for them. Um, But also, I think there's just this anticipation that doesn't fatigue that, you know, they're going to come any minute, they're going to come any more minute. It's, it's, It's almost like a conjuring or a summoning and like, um, you're waiting for this apparition to appear, you know, there's, you're in a place where they might. And when they do that, the, the adrenaline or the, the oxytocin, I don't know what all the emotion or all the, the chemicals that are released, um, occur when that happens. Um, you know, I think that's worth it. I mean, it's, it's, you know, I guess it's akin to knowing what you need to go through to get that high and being willing to go through it and doing a little bit more each time to get it. Um, so, you know, there could be something toxic and addictive about it. I don't know. Um, um, maybe we should rename our, you know, inventive fishing, toxic fishing or something, (laughs) but, um, uh i have to say yeah i don't know it's just i I know the payoff even if it's like a five minute fight is worth me sitting out there all day and you know granted it's a beautiful place and so you know i get a lot more out of it than just that 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 um angling experience um at the end um you know there's more there's more to the experience than just catching the fish. I've heard as that you know. before. <laughs> yeah,
0: But I think it's interesting too, because the flip side of that also reveals a lot because how many times have we been out with anglers? You know, when are we going to catch something? When are we, why are we just sitting here? You know, let's try something else that the, the impatience becomes evident also for, for anglers who aren't used to that kind of fishing with bone fishing. So another question about bone fish strategy. Um, I noticed that when I fish with you and bonefish are the primary target, which they usually are, uh, you pay a good deal of attention to water temperatures. You'll check the temperature on a flat on the edge of the flat. And then in the cuts around the flat, talk about why water temperatures are so crucial to your strategies.
1: Well, I mean, I think it's not really much of a secret that bonefish prefer, you know, a certain range. Um, and you know i think you know there's all kinds of numbers thrown out there 74 degrees as a low 72 degrees as a low um, and then there's highs to that that if it gets you know above i don't know mid 80s or high 80s and they'll they'll run deep and so you know it's 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 again just trying to pay attention to how these fish need to respond to their environment to survive. And these, you know, these, these, these temperatures are just uh, ranges and, and guesstimations and, you know, I'm sure there's, there's a lot more to bonefish physiology that would make certain individuals within the species um, operate differently outside those ranges. So it's, they're, they're you know, they're important, you um, to, I guess, to maximize the effort in the time that I have down there. Right. And so, I mean, if it's, if it's, you know, I'm down there in the winter and it's 68 degrees when I wake up, I'm just not going to go out there early and I'm going to wait till the sun's been out some and, and hopefully, and try to find some flats that have soaked, you know, from the sun a little while. And, and then, kind of put forth the the effort and and the um, and let's just face it, right? The especially now with the promise of gas, uh, you know, the the expenses that are required to get out there and to to uh, purchase shrimp or flies or whatever you know I end up using. Um, and so, I think that's part of it. It's it's you know just understanding what's the most likely outcome given a certain temperature and then you know waiting for the right time and the right spot to go and start chasing the bonefish
0: so in the background the thunder is just rocking right now here we're about to get snow tomorrow so i wish it was thunder (laughs) So let's talk bonefish conservation for a minute, too. Um, I know that you've dedicated the proceeds from the sale of your book, Network of Bones, to the Coastal Conservation Association of Florida, and that you support the work of Bonefish and Tarpon Trust. Talk about why conservation efforts are particularly important for bonefish anglers and how you as an angler develop your own conservation habits.
1: Well, I'll just be completely honest. I mean, it's all selfish, right? I just want there to be more bonefish so I can go out and catch, right? Um, But no, I mean, certainly, I mean, spending so much time thinking about bonefish, I have, you know, a, you know, a intrinsic love of bonefish that may be unhealthy. um, (laughs) But that, you know, I want, I want all species on earth protected, but especially this one, and I can't, devote you know proceeds to every species and so this is the one that's most natural and and i really think you know in a larger a larger kind of um environmental ethic i think that's an approach pointed out by um the the scholar william lines which is like you know to get the most bang for our buck and our time and our our um our fighting of compassion fatigue like if we all go kind of after the place or the species or whatever animal you know has the most emotional we have the most emotional investment in um like just that distribution is gonna i guess for lack of a better term raise all species votes (laughs) Um, i think that makes no sense but hopefully the listeners will figure out what i mean by that and and so for me it's just like well that's the fish I love. So I'm going to put my effort and and resources into supporting the conservation of that fish. Uh, other people love mahi, other people love snapper, you know, I'll let them, I'll leave it to them to be, you know, supporters of, of those fish, or active <laughs> supporters of those fish. Um, and so Yeah. So now my, you know, my scholarship is kind of invested in thinking about the larger systemic structures that affect those, uh, those animals. Uh, also maybe I'm wrong, but, you know, I think just a large, I think a large segment of the population, I would assume has no idea what a bonefish is and has never heard of one. Um, you know, certainly there's anglers all over the country and all over the world that go after bonefish and love bonefish and you know spend significant time and resources fishing for them. Um, but I think for the most part, you know, the average individual, you'd say, "Hey, have you ever heard of a bonefish?" They m- have heard of bonefish grill, <laughs> but don't otherwise know uh, of the of the actual species. And so, um, I think it's important to to bring this awareness. To light and also to kind of show their importance beyond just an economic kind of tourist um attracting sport fish um, you know they are um more than there for our entertainment they do more in the environment than just you know um give us angling pleasure and i think those messages um need to be told as well. So,
0: Excellent. That's fantastic. So let's wrap this up with the fishing professor's traditional final question, but I'm going to tweak the question a bit for you since we've been so focused on bonefish today. Normally I ask the guests on the broadcast to confess their grail fish, the fish they still yearn for. But let me ask you two versions of that question. First, where is your grail bonefish? That is, your new book um, looks at bone fishing around the world. So, where is the place where you haven't caught a bone fish that you crave to catch one? I'm willing to bet I can guess the answer. And then the second one is other than a bone fish, um, and I'm probably going to guess the answer here too, uh, which is unfair just because you know we fish together a lot. What is your other grail fish, or have you become so of- obsessed with bones, like we talked about with Zane Gray, that you don't have a desire for other fish? So where, where do you want a bone more than any?
1: So, okay. (laughs) That's a really interesting question. It used to be the Marquesas. uh, When I finally found the bonefish there, uh, you know, they're not there. They're they're difficult to get there. And I was finally able to, to kind of understand how they, how they live out there Um. I would have to say, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's so it's everywhere bonefish live is my locations, but certainly having got a taste of it in Hawaii, like I would love to be able to go further west out to, well, (laughs) you know, some of the, the atolls that are out in the Pacific, Um, but certainly places like the Maldives, um, the Seychelles, uh you know any of these you know tropical and subtropical locations where where they're at um but you know I, I i'd also like to try my hand at belize and mexico um and and i'm also kind of tempted i'm i, I want to try to catch one of these san diego bonefish that, are, that i hear are out there um and Ah, uh, this is such a hard question. All right. So if I had to pick one place though, I will just pick the Seychelles. That
0: was my, that was, that was my predicted answer. For okay. you, the Seychelles. <laughs> I knew San Diego was going to come up in there, yeah. but I figured your go-to would be the Seychelles. So put it, put the bones away for a second. Okay. What's the other, what's, what's the other grail fish for Dr. Bonefish?
1: Well, I'll list a couple. I, I, you know, so mm, I haven't, been able to get out and um tackle a giant trevally yet so getting a gt would i think would be is on the list i'll also put uh a milkfish on the list and i've heard like you know people i don't understand this and i would like i i don't know that i i would ever have this problem maybe i would like to have this problem but people going out to the seychelles and and you know that region and catching so many bonefish they get bored of it and then they're like okay what else is out here and then they see milkfish, and they're like oh snap and so you know so they'll go after um, um um and start targeting them and so i think i would like to see you know i haven't got a chance to to angle for them but i still have to think um as many tarpon as i've caught i've never caught one that's like one of these like seven foot you know 180 pound kind of of you know beasts and so I think my holy grail is, is, you know, catching one of these tarpon that are, are bigger than I am, you know, and, um, you know, not just hooking it, which I've done, but I mean, you know, I think a lot of us have who tarpon fish, but, you know, actually, actually getting it, you know, to the boat. And as a kid, I was very limited in my, 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 uh my rigging options and what I was able to afford. And so I mostly had pretty lightweight spinning for permit and tarpon. I mean, permit and bonefish, I'm sorry. Um, But, you know, now that I actually have some heavy rods and, you know, if I can get down there in April or May, when those that size typically cruises through the keys or wherever um, I still need to get, I still feel I need that tarpon. Uh, I've caught some big ass permit. I've caught big bones, you know, but I haven't gotten, you know, you know, the kind of uh, quintessentially ferocious, you know, magical tarpon, you know, one of these torpedoes that you see that are like six feet plus and, and just tackle busting.
0: Yeah. You know, it's interesting you say that, and I know this was the wrap up question, but earlier when you were talking minimally about permitted tarpon, I decided to, I had had a couple of questions I wanted to ask you about you know, with your obsession of, uh, bonefish and then also sort of a secondary obsession with permit, um, you know, how does the tarpon all of a sudden play in there in terms of just getting that inshore slam? Um, you know, I've seen you catch tarpon. I've seen you, you know, catch this, but they, you know, I, I think the biggest one was that night in, um, in Boca Grand Pass. Um, oh, that's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, so tarpon are still part of that, that, uh, that grail obsession huh
1: yeah I think so and you know part of it is I don't know I just have this mentality to (laughs) go after the the less popular option or choice and and I guess it's it's just this contrarian in me to 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 kind of take a different path and you know and and I'm not saying that like bonefish isn't a popular path (laughs) among sport fishers but I feel like there's such as fever around Tarpon like when they're in you know uh when they're in migration, and you know, I feel like you know well you know what about the bonefish like you know are you <laughs> you completely forgetting them right now, and, and what about the little guy or the little fry and um, I don't know, it's just this it's I have like so much respect for Tarpon as a game fish, but I kind of feel like, you know, I'll let everybody else fish for them and not get in the tarpon spots and not hog the tarpon lanes when they're around and, you know, just get up higher on the flat where they're not cruising and, and go after my bones. Um, and so, yeah, but like, no, like I, I, <laughs> you know, once I catch my bonefish, I'm more than happy to toss at tarpon as I see them.
0: Excellent. Well, Sean, thanks so much for taking the time to be on the rodcast today and for sharing so much great bonefish knowledge. Really appreciate it. And, you know, me, I'm always glad to get a chance to hang out with you and talk. So, oh man, thank you so much for inviting me. It's been awesome. Gladly, gladly. All right. Well, thanks, Sean and fish on. I can hear those old hound dogs barking, chasing down the hoodoo there. Hey, it's time for the bourbon break, and this week we're going to be talking about the edges of the bourbon world, looking at a classic rye whiskey, Knob Creek rye to be exact. Now, a lot of my friends asked me to explain the difference between bourbon and rye, and are often befuddled by that Don McLean lyric, them good old boys was drinking whiskey and rye, singing this'll be the day that I die further adding to their discombobulation. So let's make it simple. Whiskey refers to alcoholic beverages distilled from fermented grain mash. This can be corn, barley, rye, or wheat. Bourbons are whiskeys that are distilled from at least 51% corn mash. And rye whiskey is distilled from at least 51% rye. Of course, to further perplex the unenlightened members of the social order, the term bourbon started to be used synonymously with whiskey in the American South in the early 1800s. Now, we could also get into a conversation about the distinctions between Tennessee whiskey and Kentucky bourbons, but we'll save that bit of illumination for another day. For now, we just need to acknowledge that rye and bourbon are both whiskeys and both have their merits. And to note that there's an interesting history here because prior to Prohibition, rye was one of the most used grains for American whiskeys. But after Prohibition, corn became the dominant distilled grain. Rye, in fact, was rarely seen on the market until the early 2000s again when it started to make a comeback. And while certainly not as popular as bourbon has become, rye is developing an audience, and we're seeing more and more distillers offering small batch and craft ryes in their catalogs. Now, Knob Creek Rye, as is evidenced by the name, is produced by Jim Beam Distillery in Claremont, Kentucky, and is part of the Beam Suntory subdivision of Suntory Beverage and Food Limited, which is owned by Suntory Holdings out of Osaka, Japan. So yes, Good old American Jim Beam and Knob Creek are owned by Japanese corporations. The Knob Creek line is one of several higher-end whiskeys that that the Beam team makes, including Booker's Bakers and one of my favorites, Basil Hayden. And we'll talk about those in other episodes. For now, let's talk about Knob Creek Rye. And you can pick a bottle of this up for about 40 bucks. Knob Creek Rye wasn't added to the Beam catalog until 2012. Interestingly, the label on Knob Creek Rye uses the ambiguous term patiently aged, rather than telling us how long the whiskey is aged. Adding this term to the label was a new twist for the Beam distillers, as they had identified aging times on all of their other brands prior to the release of the Knob Creek Rye. And while that's interesting, it shouldn't distract from the fact that this is a damn fine whiskey. Now, I'll be up front. I really like rye, not as much as bourbons, but still enough to consider them among my favorite whiskeys. Knob Creek Rye is a hundred proof whiskey, just like the Knob Creek Bourbon. The Knob Creek Rye has got a rich nose with aromas of caramel, but it's dominated by a pleasant woody oak air. The flavor is a great synthesis of wood and caramel as well, but with the added smoothness of vanilla, brown sugar, and even a hint of cherry. In fact, that cherry sort of serves as a transition to a dried fruit taste at the finish but it's also that consistent rye grain flavor that holds this whiskey together, giving it a cohesive palate throughout the flavor transitions and really giving form to how it sits in your mouth. I've heard a couple of people say it also has a hint of cinnamon in the finish, but I gotta say, I haven't been able to pull that flavor out anywhere in its taste spectrum, though when poured on the rocks with a splash, I do get hints of ginger on the back end of the taste. Now, I tend to drink whiskeys neat, And the Knob Creek rye is an ideal neat pour. It's not heavy or aggressive like some ryes can be, and it's not as complex as some can be either. It makes for a good daily driver, or at least a good daily rye driver. And when the bar doesn't carry the top shelf ryes, Knob Creek rye makes a damn fine surrogate, scoring points from off the bench. And that's that. But before we go, and as a final note, my regular disclaimer, as always, please keep in mind that the Fishing Professor Bourbon Break Reviews are not sponsored. The distillers have not sent me samples, nor do they influence my reviews at all, though I am always open to sponsorship, bribery, extortion, and a few on the house. The bourbons I review are purchased out of pocket, and my reviews are based on my keen sense of bourbon know-how, which I have developed over many years in many of this country's finest watering holes, drinking establishments, dives, pubs, honky-tonks, and back alleys, speakeasies. Hey, speaking of, let me give a quick shout-out to Duncan's on the Gulf, a great dockside bar restaurant in Cedar Key, Florida. Just a great place to sit on the edge of the Gulf and sip some fine rye. So that's it for the Bourbon Break today, but before we get back to the fishing, let's take a moment to remember the wisdom of that great American writer, Mark Twain, who taught us that too much of anything is bad, but too much good whiskey is barely enough. As always, if you've got comments about this week's Bourbon Break, feel free to email me at sid@inventivishing.com. Drink on, my friends! Okay, it is time for the top 10 for the week. And this week, I am really excited by this list. This list is indeed inspired by Dr. Bonefish Mori, who has just been in the Inshore Offshore Digital Studio with us. And I am so excited, in fact, that I got to sing it out. "By na 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 On the day I was born, the nurses all gather round, and they gaze in a wide wonder at the joy they had found. The head nurse spoke up, said, Leave this one alone. She could tell right away that I was bad to the bone. Bubba, bubba, bad, bubba, bubba, bad, bad to the bone. I caught a thousand fish afore I met you. I'll catch a thousand more, baby, afore I am through. Bad to the bone. So yes, 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 let's count down my top 10 favorite bonefish lures. Now, let me say I love bonefishing, and I do owe a lot of my learning about bonefishing to my partner in fishing crime, Dr. Sean Bonefish, Dr. Bonefish Mori. I should also say that fishing for bones with artificials does take a real degree of patience, I know a lot of you like fishing for bones with flies or bait, and we just heard Dr. Bonefish talk about bait fishing for bones, and that is certainly some exciting stuff, but I'm not going to include any fly patterns or bait rigs in my top 10 bone fishing lure list. Instead, I'm going to stick to a variety of jigs and other lures. Now, keep in mind that bonefish primarily prey on small crustaceans, so most of these lures in my list are crab or shrimp imitators. So with the flats in mind and the Grey Ghost as the target for what it's worth, here are my top 10 bonefish lures. Okay, at number 10, we have a lure that I stumbled upon on Amazon while looking for bonefish jigs. And before I tell you which jig I'm talking about, I have to say that there are a lot of great independent lure makers out there, especially in South Florida and throughout the Florida Keys and the Bahamas, that are tying some fantastic great bonefish jigs. So, if you poke around in tackle shops or online, you're going to find some great bonefish jigs. But for me, my number 10 spot goes to a lure that I found on Amazon and then read about on the company's homepage, and I'm talking about Haggerty Lures Shrimp Bugs. Interestingly, Haggerty Lures operates out of Reading, Pennsylvania, and they make both fresh and saltwater lures. The design of their shrimp bugs are great for bonefish, and I'm a big fan of their pink pearl design. One note about Haggerty's, by the way, whether you order from, from them directly or via Amazon, they don't keep a stock of lures on hand. They tie the lures when you order them. So they'll tell you up front that delivery time is three to five weeks. Nonetheless, it's worth the wait as these bonefish jigs are worth having in your bone box. Okay, at number nine, I've got Berkeley Gulp Alive Peeler Crab. Now, if you know Gulp Alive, you know that these are scented baits that come packaged in a scented fluid that charges the soft body bait. It's that scent in the gulp alive peeler crab that will draw bone fish in. I like to rig the gulp alive peeler crab on a smaller jig head when casting the bones. Okay, and number eight, I've got a classic lure, the DOA shrimp. And I'm sure you've heard me talk about the DOA shrimp before, as it is truly a benchmark lure in the artificial shrimp world. Yeah, there's an artificial shrimp world. Um, it is the most often copied shrimp body design out there. What makes Mark Nichols' design so great, and he told me about how much time he invested in getting this aspect of the shrimp right, is the fact that shrimp fall horizontal. And the lure does this when it's settling down from in the water to a solid surface. If you've ever watched a shrimp swim, when it rests, it settles not with its head or tail up, but horizontally. The DOA shrimp has this action down perfect. That's in part due to the internal weight of the lure, which also makes this a very castable lure. The DOA shrimp is available in five sizes, ranging from 2 inch to 6 inch, and it's that smaller 2-inch version that is great for bones. Okay, at number seven, I'm going to stick with artificial shrimp and offer up Live Targets fleeing shrimp. The winner of the 2018 iCast Best Saltwater Lure Product Showcase is a great bonefish lure. Like the name says, the swimming action of this shrimp lure the shrimmy, swimming shrimp lure, mimics a shrimp fleeing, which means the lure appears to swim backwards with a snapping motion. The lure achieves this through its silicone skirt that moves great in the water on the retrieve to mimic the action of a shrimp's front legs when fleeing a predator. The remainder of the body is a durable, tough plastic, and the tail of the lure is a weighted jig head. The profile of the lure is incredibly lifelike, and it comes with an internal glass rattle to create an auditory attractant through its clicking sound, like the clicking of a fleeing shrimp. It's also a scented lure. That gives this lure three sensory attractants, smell, sight, and sound. If you want to see my full review of the live target fleeing shrimp, you can find that video gear review at the at inventifishing.com or on the Inventifishing YouTube channel. Okay, At number 6, I've got Doc's Goofy Jig with a Teaser. Now, those of you familiar with Doc's Goofy Jig probably recognize it as a great Pompano Jig. But it's also a great Bonefish Jig, and to be honest about it, it's pretty solid on permit, too. The Goofy Jig is a unique lure that combines a lead-covered hook with a teaser flare. Goofy Jigs come in 1-8, 1-4, 3-8, and half ounce sizes and are available in nine colors, with solid, solid yellow being the most popular. It's that half-ounce size that is best suited for bonefish, but the smaller ones work well, too. All right, at number five, I'm going with a more traditional bonefish jig in Tsunami's flash, flats jig. These jigs are really the traditional bonefish jig with a flat arrowhead-shaped lead head and a bucktail flare tail. The Tsunami version includes sparkle fibers. It's kind of like a marabou blended with the bucktail to give an additional visual attractant. These jigs imitate a crustacean scrambling across the bottom and are just the right size for bonefish. I've had luck with bones with the white, the chartreuse, the white and chartreuse, the red and white, and the pink versions. Okay, for number four, I'm going to stick with a similar kind of bonefish jig and the Wahoo Bonefish Bucktail Jig. Now, at first glance, you might think there's not much difference between the Wahoo Bonefish Bucktail Jig and the Tsunami Flats Jig, but there's a reason I'm ranking um, the Wahoo Bonefish Jig ahead of the Tsunami Flats Jig, and that's the addition of the two mono weed guards that are part of the Wahoo Bonefish Bucktail design. These two stiff pieces of mono make the Wahoo Bonefish Bucktail pretty close to weedless, which is useful when you're fishing for bones along transition lines between grass and sand flats. I also like the flat leadhead style of the Wahoo Bonefish Bucktail and the bucktail material, which also includes an accent flash, again, sort of like Maribou, um, and how they tie this within the bucktail. Likewise, the Wahoo Bonefish Bucktail has got great holographic eyes, which are a bit more prominent than the eyes on the Tsunami Flats jig. All right, at number three, let's go with Savage Gear's TPE 3D Crab. These crabs come in three sizes, a 2-inch, a 3-inch, and a 4-inch. But it's that smaller two inch size that just works great for bonefish. The Savage TPE 3D crabs, um, the, the lure design on this is based on a 3D scan of an actual crab. And like most of Mad's, Mad Grossel's uh, Savage Gear lure designs and 3D, the 3D TPE crab has got great realistic characteristics, both in its appearance and its swimming action. And when you rig it or buy it pre-rigged with Savage Gear's 3D Crab Stand-Up Jig Head, the lure rests on the bottom with its claws raised in a defensive position, just like a real crab defending against a predator. Now, I do have to be fair here too and say that while I have had a lot of great luck with the Savage Gear 3D TPE Crab, I have not fished for bonefish with Savage Gear's crab competitors like the Chase Bait Smash Crab or the crank crab Both of which look to have the properties of a solid bonefish crab lure. But because I haven't fished them for bonefish in particular, I'm sticking with my experience and the Savage Gear 3D TPE crab in my number three spot. Okay, in the number two spot for the Fishing Professor's Top 10 Bonefish Lures, I'm going to another of my favorite all around lures, and that's Egret Baits Voodoo Shrimp. Now, you've probably heard me say it before. I love what Ken Showman has done with Egret Baits. And his shrimp design in the voodoo shrimp is just excellent. And yes, I reviewed the voodoo shrimp a few years back, and the review is still available at inventafishing.com and on the Inventafishing YouTube channel. And in the time since doing that review, I've become an even bigger fan of the voodoo shrimp and have fished it for bonefish many times. It's got a segmented tail and great front legs that contribute to a real lifelike motion when the lure is retrieved or jigged. It comes pre-rigged with a weighted hook and moves just great on sand flats or up against the mangroves where the bonefish congregate. All in all, my absolute favorite shrimp imitator for bonefish and my second favorite bonefish lure. And that brings us to the fishing professor's bonefish jig numero uno. But let's get a quick recap of the top nine before getting to the number one bonefish jig. At number 10, we've got Haggerty lures, Shrimp Bugs Tiger Shrimp Bonefish Jig. At number nine, we've got Berkeley Gulp Peeler Crabs. At number eight, DOA Shrimp. At seven, Live Targets Fleeing Shrimp. At six, Doc's Goofy Jig with Teaser. At five, the Tsunami Flats Jig. At four, Wahoo Bonefish Bucktail Jig. At three, Savage Gear's TPE 3D Crab. At number two, Egret Bait's Voodoo Shrimp. And that brings us to my number one favorite bonefish lure, and that is the Z-Man Skimmer Z, or Skimmers. The Skimmers, or Skimmer Z, is an innovative take on the traditional bonefish jig. It's got the flat lead head and the stiff twin mono weedless lines like a traditional flats or bonefish jig. But unlike the traditional jigs that use bucktail for the tail, the Skimmer Z uses a silicone skirt. Unlike most bonefish jigs that use bucktail or feathered skirts on a flat head, the Z-Man Skimmer Z uses a silicone skirt that is coordinated with the lead head color and the silicone skirt. I also really appreciate that the Skimmer Z razor sharp black nickel hooks are perfect for bonefish. Whether you opt to tip this lure with shrimp, uh, maybe a shrimp tail or not, the Z-Man Skimmer Z is the best bonefish jig out there. And that's it for this week's Top 10 Countdown. As always, if you have comments about my Top 10 or if you want to recommend a bonefish lure for me to try out, whether it's one of your personal favorites or whether you're a manufacturer and you want me to be aware of your lure, you can always message me at sid at or just leave a comment in the comment section of whatever podcast platform you're listening to the rodcast on. As always, just a reminder that these are my Top 10, not a sponsored influence Top 10, um, I do dream of being a real boy one day and having sponsorship. Always, if you'd like a fishing professor's top 10 about a particular fishing-related thing, just shoot me an email and I'll see about adding it to my list for future top 10s. Knick-knack, whack let's get the fishing professor a bone. Well, that brings us to the end of another great episode of the Fishing Professor Rodcast. Hey, you can tell all your friends that you listened to a great podcast today all about boning. To that end, I want to thank Sean Dr. Bonefish Mori, for joining me in the inshore offshore studio today and for sharing his bonefish expertise with us. If you want more great bonefish culture insight, check out his book, Network of Bones, and keep an eye out for his forthcoming global bonefish book. Okay, before I sign off today, I do have a message for our brothers and sisters out there behind the line. The net needs mending. I say again, the net needs mending. And that leaves us bone dry at the end of this week's Rodcast. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. We've got a great new episode coming up next week, and I hope you'll give it a listen when it drops. Remember that new episodes drop every Wednesday. As always, please be sure to share the Fishing Professor Rodcast with everyone you know. Use your social media networks to let all of your friends and followers know that you listen to the Fishing Professor Rodcast. As always, if you have a comment or question about anything on this week's show or have recommendations for future top 10s, bourbon breaks, interviews, or information about specific fishing-related issues, please feel free to email me at Sid at or leave a reply in any of the comment sections for any of the podcast platforms you use to listen to the Rodcast. Hey, be sure to check out the Inventive Fishing webpages and be sure to follow us on Twitter and friend us on Facebook at Inventive I will be back next week with another episode of The Rodcast. Until then, this is Sid Dobrin, The Fishing Professor. Fish on! The Fishing Professor Show is copyrighted by Inventive Fishing, LLC. Any rebroadcast of the podcast without the consent from Inventive Fishing, LLC is strictly prohibited. Fish on!